B2B software, you know, everybody wants to see roadmaps that stretch out far into the future, depending on, you know, the situation a company depends how far, but typically, you know, half a year, year, sometimes even longer. Again, we come back to the fact that all the stakeholders are pushing you to show more stuff on the roadmap. And even if everybody's roadmap always, it has a disclaimer, it's not committed and essentially saying that you can't trust anything that's on it. If you do take something out of there or if you do delay something, of course, there's going to be someone who's going to be asking that, you know, what, what happened. So in a way that even as a mechanism is, it's sort of locking you in. Hello. And welcome to DevOps Sauna. Research and development organizations work most effectively when the culture, business model, and tools guide the organization towards a balanced and effective product development. Oh, that's a mouthful. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to combine culture, business models, and tools effectively? What is R&D efficiency? What is wrong with it? And how to start solving it? We are joined by Perttu Nihti, Chief Product Officer at Passware, and Markku Nurmela, Lead Consultant in Product and Portfolio Management at Efficode. Let's tune in to listen what Perttu and Markku say about effective R&D organizations. Thank you for taking the time, Perttu and Markku, and welcome to the DevOps Sauna podcast. Thanks. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Same here. How was your weekend? Yeah, well, you know, Christmas is coming, so some preps for that. Going still around the shops while, well, you still can't go to the shops. I don't think they'll go to a full lockdown here, but anyway, it's, uh, yeah, mostly Christmas shopping. Well, it was a wet one with, with the dogs in the woods. No shopping for me. I got a concrete sample of uh, time value of money um, I was doing shopping as well and then I had been given an idea of what to buy and then I was comparing the prices and there was a price difference but there was also a difference to a distance from where I was to where it was available for cheaper and then I was calculating like how much cheaper does it have to be for me to go pick it up from the other place and it this time it seemed to be exactly the amount of discount I was holding a package in my hand and I didn't know what it cost. And I thought, if it costs more than this, then it's worth going and getting it from the other place. And then I went and checked the price and it was exactly my reservation wage. So I, I saved some 15 minutes from driving around. So that's your practical example of behavioral economics in action. You were relying that the goods are still there. They might have some trouble with the inventory. and There was, was none when you arrived. There's a risk. Yeah, sure. There is. <laughs> that reminds me of this uh, mathematical idea of optimal stopping. Is how how many places do you have to check for inventory before you give up or something like that? Well, today we're talking about R and D efficiency, and uh, we are lucky to have you, Perto, joining us. As a matter of fact, this is the second uh, episode of roughly the same topic. So we had somebody joining our podcast talking about R&D efficiency or R&D effectiveness, but they had a slightly different point of view. Their point of view was how do you measure it? What are the metrics and, and so on and so forth? Where in our case, we are probably looking at 
more like a journey or how to get going with it, how to set things on the right track and then how to go about doing it. I'd like to start by simply asking, what is it and uh, what's wrong with it? Why does it deserve a conversation like this? It's a, it's a good question. And I guess everybody can have a little bit of their own point of view on it. Um, I'd say that the way I look at it is from the perspective of how much customer value can and is delivered from product development. So even if it's a bit of a cliche, but I would say that it really comes back to do you really focus at, you know, doing the right things or are you focusing on, on doing the things right? And, and from my perspective, really the bigger, bigger lever is that first you need to absolutely ensure that you're doing the right things. And of course, there's always room to improve in, in your processes and in your efficiency, in your efficiency and, uh, and, and, and your throughput times. But ultimately, you know, if you are, if you're focused on the wrong things from the beginning, then you can, produce a lot of things without a lot of value uh, very efficiently. I, I have to agree with Bert. Of course, I, I have a kind of product management background. So, well, the key thing is to kind of have a good understanding before we start developing something. And uh, as you know, we, we things change during the journey and, and we don't know everything, but we have tools to tackle those things. But, but just having a good enough understanding on what are we going to do and why is it needed? I think that that's the key. It's really hard to fix that later on. Yeah, when we were preparing this, we were discussing about difference between push and pull. The basic concept was that whatever R&D should be doing, we should already know that it's important stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the way I look at it is, is maybe like through more perhaps a, a process view, than, uh, than strictly speaking, roles. So, so not so much focusing on you know is it is it product management or R and D, but looking at it from from the stages in the process. And I think you know you need to have enough capacity in the early stages of the process where you define you know uh, what are the problems that you want to solve, and then you start to take a more iterative approach to finding the right kind of solution before you really then start you know the the, the full product development or the R&D effort. And of course, there's iteration also in that, but it's just, you know, the, the, the further you go, the more you're sort of committed, right? And the more sort of sunk cost investments you have in place. So from my perspective, I would say that it's, if you're going to do waste and ultimately you're going to do some waste, there's no way around that. You should do that early on in the process. I mean, fail early. That's what everybody's saying, of course. But it also then means that where you need to have the bottleneck in the process is actually further down the line. So you need to have enough capacity in the process. Um, and again, you know, there's going to be multiple roles working on it. So there's going to be product management and, and R&D and, uh, and, you know, pre-sales and sometimes, you know, your delivery consultants or support or whatever who are going to work with you in the early stages of the process. But you need to have enough bandwidth there so that you can really, really make sure that once you start the sort of heavy effort of product development, then you're already pretty sure that you're working on the wrong, on the right things. So to me, the product development stage, of course, it always is a bottleneck and everybody understands it, but it really needs to be a massive bottleneck because if it's not, then what's going to happen is that you're going to rush the early stages in order to feed, you know, uh, quote unquote, feed, you know, the, 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 the R&D, feed the product development phase of it. And that's, of course, one way to do it. You get a lot of throughput, you get a lot of output if you do it that way. 
Um, but the problem is that you're going to be in such a rush that it's going to be, you're not going to have the time to really do the validation uh, well enough early on. I guess it's somehow deep in our DNA that we should really start working pretty quickly with the solution. I guess this is partly our training or education that bring us solutions quickly. I fully agree with Pertu and, and the um, and my, my point is focusing on the problem first and focus enough on the problem and have enough people focusing on problem from different aspects because that's that's where the hard part is, understanding why is this valuable, who needs this, what's the real scope and and so forth. And when, when that's done, then then the, the development also is, is much of course easier. But then again, I, I think it's it's not that big time investment, but it requires that people who really know these things, they just gather together and, and kind of discuss things with with uh, kind of good quality and they then go forward. Yeah. And it's very tempting, of course, to zero in on the solution uh, pretty fast because all your stakeholders are, I mean, if you work in product development, pretty much all your stakeholders are pushing you to zero in on the solution quickly. Right. You know, sales wants to have something to sell very quickly. Customers want to know how you're going to do this thing and they, they, they want to get it as soon as possible. Product management, management included is sometimes pushing you to, to, you know, get, get to a quick outcome. So that's why partially it's difficult, right? Because everybody's pushing for a solution and a quick, quick resolution. And I agree with, with uh, Mark, it doesn't have to take long, right? But of course, then it is often difficult to get that you know, key, typically cross-functional stakeholders to really talk to each other. I mean, typically you can do it pretty fast. I mean, if you could lock people in a room for a week or even a few days, you, you could actually probably get to a, you know, a fairly good experiment that you can then start to validate um, or even validate during that week, actually. But it's just, it's in many organizations, that's a luxury that you actually do not have. And that's why they then tend to drag out in terms of color time as well. I, I guess it's partly our ways of working, these kind of uh, sessions for, for stakeholders and people who really can focus on what, what should be developed. That, that should be kind of pre-planned and calendar set for months and months before. Because if you try to do this uh, like before the sprint or what, whatever system are you running, then you typically don't have slots in calendar for for important people so it's this is partly a time management problem as well paul graham had a great blog post a long long time ago and my colleague referred me to that and it was labeled as a maker schedule and manager schedule which was basically the concept that when you are a manager your week is split into 30 minute increments and it's it's easy to do one more meeting because you view the world in 30 minute increments whereas if you are a maker you view the world as a half a day increments and if you put the 30 minute increment in between the half a day increment then basically the half of the day is ruined that's a good reminder when we when we work on this this step of the process okay let's find out something worthwhile doing and let's do a quick experiment whether it takes half a day, if they get the piece of doing it in a half a day, you get an incredibly high quality or incredible results in half a day only. Yeah, that's that's true. And I think, I mean, at least what I see is that now during the pandemic, when we have gone into hybrid or depending on the time and the country, fully remote working for now an extended period of time, I think actually it's gotten 
even a little bit worse. So there's a little bit more in terms of having these quick, you know, 15, 30 minute sync meetings, which, you know, normally you would have done at, at, at the water cooler, right? Especially if you're at the same, you know, if, if you're at the same office, there's a lot of interaction that has happened that you now realize isn't actually there. And there was actually a very interesting article in, I think it was in Nature. They studied the US-based employees of Microsoft over the first half of 2020. So time before the pandemic and time during. What they found out wasn't really super novel. However, you know, what they found out is that yes, actually communication, you know, roughly stayed because it was just replaced by other means. But what dropped off pretty much completely is the communication to different teams. So the communications within your team, they stayed up and down, you know, that worked perfectly well, but pretty much all the accidental communication and all the communication to teams that you do not work closely with dropped off. And I think this has a bit of a uh, connection also to this discussion because it, it, it means that like Marco said, you really actually perhaps now even more than ever, you actually need to pre-plan things in order to make sure that you have those those discussions and, and 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 during during the early stages of the of the life cycle because none of it happens as a as a surprise unless unless of course you know you're lucky enough to to, to you know be at the office with uh, with some people but I mean I, I just found it out like a few weeks ago I was at the office and uh, just bumped into some people from an R&D team and led to a discussion which I would not have booked with them but got some really good insights of a product that's already in the market but 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 still insights that you know I would not have gotten otherwise. That's that's really interesting because there was another study. What are people actually actually doing with the uh, kind of uh, save time from commuting to the workplace? And it was kind of surprising that like fifty percent of that save time they will use for working. So well, so they will do actually more work, and they will do more work with their own team and less work. With, with the other teams. So I guess if we don't pre-plan the interactions or, or kind of make changes to ceremonies between teams or, or however this kind of uh, change of information can be handled, then things will actually get worse. So this this is something we should really kind of put really some some focus on on this this uh, kind of serendipity or, or how you interact with your colleagues. In, in not so formal way, but that's a really important way to change information. Yeah, when we were preparing this, um, we were discussing about what are the best ways to approach the R&D efficiency problem. Um, some of them probably have uh, uh, shown their class during during this um, special time, but I believe that some of them are, let's say, evergreen stuff, that they are, they are always true. Maybe we should... Uh, look a little more closely into those, let's say, three methods to apply when solving the problem in the R&D effectiveness. And I think uh, you're touching on so many points there that I'd like, like to prompt you to dive a little more closely into those. So you listed number one, which is be close to a customer, then number two being joint high-level process across teams, and then number three was portfolio metrics and transparent prioritization. Should we start with the first one getting close to customers and then take it from there yeah sure absolutely so i mean of course again sounds really obvious right if we said that you need to focus on the right problems to solve then probably it makes a whole lot of sense to 
you know, have a chat with your customers. <laughs> so that's not really like a completely new idea. However, I think, again, probably like many organizations struggle from the fact that, again, you know, the calendars are really filled, everybody is super busy. So what at least I found out, it's it's actually important to have some systematic ways of interacting with the customers, you know, throughout uh, throughout the development process. And this, of course, also includes internal stakeholders, uh, even if I wouldn't necessarily call them customers, but of course, if you are, for example, developing software that 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 you know has a has a need for a lot of you know configurations and, and for example integrations then probably you know the delivery consultants are are one key internal stakeholder that you need to keep in the loop. And many times, you know, the product management especially, um, as well as R and D, they're they're so busy doing their day to day job that they do of course have interactions with customers, but it's more it's more reactive. So unless there is someone, you know, facilitating in a way the the more proactive ways to reach out to your customer i feel that it's it's often not done enough right but if you have mechanisms in place right where you know product managers just look i have this idea i need to i want to start to validate it you know how could i do it where can i find the customers if you have all that sorted out right and you have a place for that person to go and then you know in a way a mechanism in place to do it it makes it you know again so much easier and i think we come back to the fact that now things are a bit different and i think it's to the working working mode we're in. And I think it's actually just like even more important that there is someone who can facilitate these, you know, you can call them customer focus groups or or customer deep interviews or whatever, however you want to do it, but so that there is a mechanism in place. And it can be a person who helps, you know, product manager. It can be just, you know, one one sheet of okay, this is how you do it. You know, here are the customers you who have expressed their interest, but something to help them along so that you just don't put the burden on it on, on each and every uh, individual themselves uh, but, but have something like you know uh, pre-thought to facilitate a little bit uh, as we talked how kind of um, valuable the time is that we, we probably should get more out of that kind of quality time with the customers and stakeholders as well so that brings to me a couple of questions about how, how we do things or how we kind of define things. For example, are we speaking the same language? For example, this this seems to be really a challenge even within the organization. But when, when we kind of talk to customers, are we really, really talking about the same thing? So the language and the kind of term terminology we are using, that, that should be, of course, kind of familiar or, or shared with, with each party. Berto mentioned in the very beginning the the word value, and that that is somewhat of somewhat of a challenge because value is as a word is has has so many meanings. It has so many different meanings for for different uh, uh, stakeholders and customers. So when we have these discussions with with customers, we should really have some kind of framework of our own how we define the different value elements for ourselves because if we don't have that then then and we are just using this um, ambi- ambiguous word of value we don't get that much out of customers so so what are the real value elements and and what's the how how do they direct our kind of further development work how do we prioritize what's our product vision that types of things can be then defined much more easily if we have 
kind of uh, shared vocabulary, what are we talking about, and also this shared framework of value, what are we trying to solve for the customers and what do they appreciate? Yeah, and that's super important, of course, also internally. So many teams have probably done it already, but uh, but but uh, what I've also found out is that you know if you don't have the jointly agreed you know terminology, you know how do you even define value? Um, how do you quantify it? Um, and and use sort of consistently you know the same kind of frameworks and methods across the teams. It's really difficult then to enter into a good discussion um, in terms of you know how you should how you should prioritize and um, of course prioritization you know with, within a team within a product area when it gets even more difficult is of course if you want to do it across teams and across product areas because then there's going to be even some differences that you do need to take into account also in in for example how do you then how do you then define the value in each but but I think that's that's something that again I think it's a it's a journey and I think you just need to put like enough focus also on that it may not sound super important because it may sound a little bit bureaucratic and you don't have to overdo it but you know i think the basic things you do need to have common between at least a common understanding between the teams and individuals otherwise it's going to be very difficult to have the more meaningful discussions often in a b2b product managers start their sentence by saying sales says this and sales says that and that can be available inside if that sales happens to be a person who also has a background as a practitioner, who has been a company long enough so that they actually have a, a reasonable sample of what the customer need is. But there can also be a risk confusing what sales says to what customer really needs. But I'd like to hear your thoughts about what you said, Perto, getting the feedback straight from the customer or getting a feedback through a proxy and and what's your experience has been sort of mashing up these two yeah i mean of course it's always best to go direct to the source whenever you can um it's not always practical it's not always even possible and of course it doesn't it doesn't scale as well if you have 100 salespeople going to customers of course it's a it's a really valuable pool of people with really good insights and they have you just need to understand that you know when sales says <laughs> then I think you just need to understand why are they saying it, right? And there can be multiple reasons. So I think sales is a really good source of uh, competitor intelligence because they do, you know, come across tidbits that come from customers that, you know, some competitors have over, you know, these kind of things, which perhaps then is a gap in the portfolio. They, of course, go through a wealth of RFPs. So they see, you know, what are the kind of things that customers are requesting for in the market. And then, of course, depending on whether they are a hunter or a farmer or something in between, then they can also have really good insights to what your existing customers are actually saying and wanting. And then you just need to be very clear and understand that if sales says that we need X, right, then why do we need it? It's a completely different thing to say that, ah, well, it's in all of the RFPs and now we have to say no. And that's why, you know, it's really hurting us. That gives you an idea that, okay, it's being asked for in the market. It doesn't really give you any confidence that it's actually being used by anyone <laughs> or, or even bought by anyone, actually, because it can just be an option that they ultimately you know, don't even want. But it could be a hurdle that you don't even get into the game if you don't have it. So it's, you know, it's an important information to have. If it's an existing customer, then you typically, you know, then you should pay very close ear to 
to to what your sales is setting and and then definitely you know follow up and and have the discussion with the customers uh, because then it can be you know either pointing out something which is you know just something that you just you know need to fix in order to for example increase your customer satisfaction and decrease your churn or it can be a major upsell opportunity right it can be even a big area which could actually grow into something very meaningful and of course as we all know you know doing more business with your existing customers is always easier than than, than hunting for, for for net use so that that you should definitely keep a a, a very close eye on and then if it's if it's then something more more generic, I would say that okay, you know, competitor has this and we don't. Competitors are always going to have something that you don't, right? So that's just the name of the game. Um, and then you just really need to make sure that before you embark on anything, you understand that it is actually something which fits into your product vision and product strategy and does actually bring value to your customers because the customer segmentation between you and your competitors can also be completely different. So so I have to take that into to mind as well. But then I would say, of course, uh, then that I would try to try to then systemize a little bit through, for example, win loss interviews, or or just like get get a little bit more mass behind that kind of intel. Yeah, definitely, you shouldn't ever dismiss out of hand what what sales says. I know sometimes in you know can feel that they're sort of uh, yeah complaining or shifting the blame onto on the product for not selling enough. But uh, but there's very good insights coming from there. You just have to know what's what right and and you can't take everything at, at face value maybe one one thing i i would like to add here is uh, that of course the customer they sometimes or actually they quite often they look at the symptoms of, of some problems but what, what's the kind of the root cause or why why is why do they need this x it might be actually why they are looking for and that's what you mentioned about the facilitating the discussion is, is really important because then you just maybe just don't accept the first answer that we, we need this X. Why do you need it? And this comes back to the kind of understanding the problem. So why is the X important? So maybe there is some underlying reason for it, which is the kind of actual benefit or or problem we we should be solving so that is that is reason why why there should be kind of more time spent even if it's sales or if product manager or even developers discussing with the customer just getting a better understanding what's what's behind all this why is this needed so uh, that's that's that leads also to the kind of proper documentation of, of customer understanding this uh h- how do we kind of document these needs who has them how urgent or how important is that all the kind of uh, kind of traceability of requirements that type of things that comes next when when you understand then you should just also kind of document that as well that's a very much in line with our second point that uh, we were discussing as we were setting this uh, podcast up your point number two was joint high-level process across teams to align cross-portfolio work and focus on high value items what does it really mean in concrete terms to have a joint high-level process across teams yeah, I mean, to me, it, it it just basically means that that you you have a defined product development process. You know that of course needs to fit your your situation. Plenty out there to to choose from and adapt. But something which is basically just like a 
And again, don't need to go overboard, but something that you know, this this is how we do, you know, product development around here, right? This is this is how the early stages work. This is how you analyze, define the problem. This is how you go into, you know, defining and designing more the solution and starting to validate it. And these are the later stages all the way to, you know, getting something that actually works in the customer's hands. Again, I think, you know, each company should pick the one which fits them the best. And then of course, you know, be ready to continuously tweak it because you might might realize that, you know, for example, you've gone overboard and made it too stiff or or, or, or or whatever. But some kind of, you know, structures are good to have in place. I know some people are saying that, no, 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 it's just like everything needs to be like super agile and do everything. That can also work depending on the setup. But typically, especially in B2B software, you have a lot of dependencies between between the different products or the product components, then you do need some kind of structure there too. To, to, to manage that. And then just, you know, defining that obviously together with the people who are actually doing the work is otherwise you're for sure going to be defining something which nobody wants to use. It's a journey to get it into use and start to adapt it so that it is actually fit for purpose. And that can take, you know, easily a year before you are, uh, or you want to be, depending, of course, again, where you start from. But if you don't have anything joined in place, it can, it can take a bit of time. And, you know, many companies don't have because, you know, maybe they've done some acquisitions. So maybe they have teams working on different tech stacks. Maybe they have teams working on completely different methodologies. So it takes time to then, you know, bring all of that together and start to speak the same language. Again, if you need to, if you don't need to, if you have a situation where you have completely independent products in the portfolio, then of course you don't necessarily have to do all this. But if you have a portfolio with, you know, dependencies, then you do you do need some level of alignment. How much? That of course is then up for debate per each company. One thing about this, which which I think we we haven't touched on too much yet. I think Marco mentioned it, but but something that I also find sometimes a bit let's say difficult or even misunderstood in a B two B context. It's the concept of the minimum viable product, so the MVP. There are a lot of talks about MVPs. Yeah, let's have an MVP approach and let's do an MVP. But then many times, if you really take it literally um, and really try to do something which is both, you know, minimum and viable, meaning that you actually get your customers to use it. And especially if you work with larger enterprises, the hurdle of that can be pretty high, right? So the, the minimum can actually already be a pretty substantial investment if you go down the route of, you know, starting to develop something which I know is not the only interpretation of that, but it's, it is often the one that people take. But Mark, we see more of this across different companies. So so what's what's your take on this? Well, I, I witnessed what, what you said a lot, that the MVP is somehow always defined as some kind of product version or even the first version of the product, which it should not be. It, it can be, of course, some, some set of features you want to kind of experiment. Are, are these valuable enough or have, have we understood the problem correctly? Or is the usability of, of this thing we are planning to do good enough? But then again, there's a lot more we, we can do with, with the MVP concept. I, I see it. it. It's some kind of a kind of well spent time and man, money for learning. That's what it should be. So depending on what, what are you trying to find out, the MVPs can be totally different. You probably don't have to develop anything at all. You could just do some, some other way or find some other ways how to test your assumptions or to test your 
your ideas with the customers. And I, I think we, as, as product development companies and people working in product de- development teams, they should use much more time on figuring out like smart experiments, cheap and, uh, well, from money and time wise, but also kind of somehow when, when you learn something new, because uh, that's, that's kind of the fundamental concept behind the MVPs. How, how can we learn something quickly and in cost efficient way? And and that's where where we, we should also look alternatives, which which it, it's not always we develop something and try it out. We we can use we use other methods for MVPs as as well. But then again, it requires a bit different mindset. It re- requires some some uh, a bit bit different skill set. What one thing I I've seen that works well from from a competence development perspective is that we just give developers some some basic service design skills because that they are not not that hard, but they help especially in in this kind of uh, documenting and understanding the customer problem from a bit different perspective. Who has the problem? other alternatives to kind of solve that how do we document that and then all, all that what is the kind of the, if, if the user experience is is well that's involved in everything what we do nowadays so how can we impact that and and there are a lot of other things than just software for example which which kind of impacts that those things so kind of uh, building up or improving the kind of um, general knowledge of, of these things among developers is, is, is really good investment in, in from, from my, my perspective. It's Lauri again. To succeed today, you need to make the most of agile practices at scale. A successful DevOps transformation starts with enabling the leadership team and upskilling every role throughout the organization. Successful change at scale relies on the team's capabilities and tools. Many teams have also found the recipe for efficiency by adopting a managed services approach to software development tools. You can find links to our training and managed services offering in the show notes. Now, let's get back to our show. When you are exploring need in the market, you can start by Google advertising. You just put $500 on Google ads account and start playing around with different ads and see what kind of proposition works. You don't even have to do it under your own brand. You can fabricate a company name because you are testing, simply testing, is there a demand for this? And uh, if you take it to the extreme, it's not my idea, but the idea was that you don't even need a website. Well, basically you need a website so that you can read error logs, what of the pages people were trying to reach. But you don't need to have those pages available because only thing you are testing is whether people ever try to reach those pages. And uh, I was thinking fr- from a B2B, especially in a SaaS software perspective, why not do the same in B2B SaaS software? Like you, you conjure an idea that this functionality could be helpful. And if you know your user personas and if you know like how your software is being used, just add a button in the UI. And uh, all what you are doing is observing as to who clicks that button. And maybe that button doesn't do anything, but only thing you want to find out is, does anyone even pay attention? 
And then you can start at the second level. Okay, it seems like people are pressing the button. How can we get their input? Like, what do you expect this button to do when you press it? And so on and so forth. And then you can start to bring the the first functionality and things like that. But it it sounds like a radical idea to start messing around with your customers or users' expectations. But just putting it out there as an idea. (laughs) Well, that's the the famous fake door. We've talked with, with several customers and they are always kind of terrified. What? There's nothing behind the fake door. But, but you can actually kind of make, make all sorts of things. What, what happens if, if the functionality is not there? And, and if you just run that experiment like week or two or something like that, then it, it's not that dangerous. But as, as you mentioned, you, you can get really valuable input. Are people even considering this is something worth worth value but sure there are other other ways to do this as well uh, using using really kind of uh, cheap methods to do that time and money wise but then then again you as as you mentioned usually if you are an established company you have some brand brand things you have to keep in mind that you you what what kind of experiments can you run with your kind of existing customers then there, there are some things you you probably should not do, at least not with your own brand. But still, I encourage everyone to think about kind of innovative methods, how to do that. It's doable. Certainly it is. How do you practically build the balance between we know what needs to be done and now let's go do it. And uh, we don't exactly know what needs to be done, but we'd like to find that out. And in order to do that, we need both of us. It's not a matter of product management or it's not a matter of R&D but it's it's this joint process across those teams to find that. Yeah, that's a difficult one because again, I think in many setups you are, you know, extremely busy and booked just, you know, churning out the roadmap that you have in place, which then means that even if I said at the beginning that you know the ideal is that you have a lot of capacity to spend at the early stages, you know, in many times the reality is that you don't. So, and then you do fall into this trap that you actually just, you know, you, you don't do enough of the validation at the early part. And you, for example, don't take R and D along into the very early discussions at all. I mean, you, maybe you have an architect there, but that, that's the extent of R and D involvement at the early stages. And then you go down the path of something to actually, you know, starting to, to, to develop something which perhaps then through iterations you do get that joint understanding but you know i have i i have you know witnessed and had experiences also of cases where that actually hasn't you know taken place and and then ultimately you know what has come out has been something which like a better word wasn't really fit for purpose um, and of course yeah the beauty of it is that of course you can then adapt it and correct it but but perhaps by doing a little bit more of a joint iterative process, then perhaps it could have been sort of more right the first time. I mean, it, it, you always find out something, right? You, you're never going to, well, hardly ever, you're going to like nail it on the first go. Um, the question is like, how much do you need to then adapt after that? Yeah, maybe the the actual epic planning or planning of the epic and uh, who gets to be there versus the prototyping and MVP who gets to be there, maybe that is, or that certainly should be different. This this may be a heretic thought, but maybe I say it aloud anyway. So um, uh, I guess the 
maybe one of the kind of biggest reasons why why the teams don't have time for try something new is about the the backlog is is all already full of things there are like 300 items waiting to be done and so forth there, there are some kind of um, new type of approaches which which tries to kind of get rid of that kind of burden of history we, we don't know why that some of the things are there and we don't know just why are they there who ask them and so forth and are they valuable anymore for example because some some time has passed and maybe maybe needs have changed we we should at least time time from time maybe maybe once or twice a year just trying to kind of uh, forget that history and start from kind of fresh clean slate and try something new and maybe just make time because time management is also about making time for new things so why don't we just take some pre-planned time to do something kind of new and experiment and, and just okay there are things that needs to be done anyway but maybe for this sprint or whatever cadence you are using or system you are using we we are kind of uh, taking a fresh start and do something else because the backlog will never be empty as, as Bertio mentioned it, it should be a back a kind of a bottleneck in that sense but from time to time we just could forget what's in there and try kind of fresh approach just a thought yeah and i think that goes hand in hand with with the thinking that as said you need to have the you need to have more capacity you know early on and it's not about it's not about the roles right it's not about having more product managers versus <laughs> versus rd it's it's about where do the people spend the time and of course if you have a full backlog let's say you've loaded your you've loaded your you know your backlog for the next you know a few weeks to a level where you know you're running at 90% capacity then it's pretty clear you don't have any time <laughs> you don't have any time then from i mean first of you're probably not going to even complete it because it's it's so high that you can't anymore you know adapt to any of these surprises that come along so there's probably going to be something more urgent coming in and and you you switch the backlog which is fine of course but at least don't fool, fool yourself that you know you're going to complete all that work that you planned out for the next few weeks and of course the people will not have time to work on anything new because they will be working on exactly the things that are in the backlog and i think that's exactly the trap where it's super easy to fall right it, b2b software you know everybody wants to see roadmaps that stretch out far into the future depending on you know the situation a company depends how far but but you know it typically you know half a year year sometimes even longer and it's uh again we come back to the fact that all the stakeholders are pushing you to show you know more stuff on the roadmap and even if everybody's roadmap always it has a disclaimer it's not committed and you know essentially saying that you can't trust anything that's on it if you do take something out of there or if you do delay something of course there's going to be someone who's going to be asking that you know what what happened so so in a way that even as a mechanism is it's sort of locking you in in a way not obviously to very detailed i mean unless you've made the mistake of having extremely detailed roadmaps it doesn't really lock you into the very specific details but still even on a high level it can be you know there, there can be so much things there that it's sort of locking in you know a major chunk of your free capacity because again you know you always have the maintenance you always have 
the surprises to come in that you need to ingest. You always have the stuff that's not even visible on any external roadmaps because it's maybe it's refactoring or, I don't know, uh, overall performance improvements or, you know, fixing some, some security issues or whatever it is. So if you're not careful, you know, that's what's going to happen, right? All the stakeholders are pushing you to commit to more and more. You're trying to commit to less, probably. But it's also very tempting then people have, you know, they have high ambitions. Uh, they want to see their own, own product or own product area grow. So it's, it's even actually not that uncommon that, that even the, even the teams themselves, you know, overstretch and overcommit. And then, then it's a vicious cycle after that. I, I think one maybe, maybe reason for that is, um, well, we are not talking about measures today and it's fine, but, but I guess measure is, is, Measurements and measures are one one kind of a reason that we somehow are so output-oriented because that's something we can measure. Measuring the value is is much harder, although we should aim aim for that. But but that, as you mentioned, that uh, roadmaps and kind of the development, the available capacity for development that that that's kind of um, somehow poorly understood people outside the R&D because, they, as you mentioned, there is so much things that are not visible and still needs to be done. So how much capacity you actually have for developing something new? It could be something, it could be 50% if you are lucky, it could be a lot less. And understanding this from a management perspective requires some Good, good knowledge and may, maybe experience with, with the actual product development. But maybe that's a kind of a discussion for a uh, topic for, for some, some other discussion. Then again, we come, come, come to the priorities and, and big things and, and like, like big problems and, and all that type of benefits, what should be driving our, our development and how, how, how can we find those out? I, I think that's, that's a key thing. And then that comes back to using enough time with, with the problems and, and with the customer needs. Yeah, I think we're very output, output focused in the, in the metrics in many places, partially because it's easy. <laughs> so again, especially if you work in, you know, software as a service world and you're, you're bound to be doing quite a bit of product development, which does not end up as a new sellable module, meaning that it does not end up as something which is separately priced. And then you can, of course, you know, quantify the value early on and, 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 and all that, but following up and really understanding the, you know, value, for example, of a given set of new functionality that you have put into a release, of course, you can follow up on how your customers are using it, which gives you some idea. Um, but if you really want to get to like sort of the hardcore, you know, your CFO is asking like, why did we spend this much R&D on this thing and what did we get out of it? Answering that is extremely difficult because there's so many other factors that are going into that. And of course, if you, you know, if you can have that discussion that look, our churn metrics are going the right way. We're bringing in a new business. We're growing at a comfortable rate, you know, both with existing customers and selling to new customers and our, you know, win rates have improved. And if you can just like, have that discussion and say that, look, this is an indication that when we look like over the longer term, we're doing the right things in product development. 
I think that's one way to, to, to tackle that. But it's extremely difficult if somebody really starts to pinpoint and say that, look, we spent a hundred man days on this particular thing. You know, what did we get out of it? And then you're very easily on the, yeah, well, we got this new shiny button, <laughs> which our customers have been pressing on average X amount of times discussion, right? Because that's the easy thing that you actually can bring to the table. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and value of nothing. It is probably easier to calculate the cost of R&D than the value of R&D. And that's, that's why this conversation exists. Question to Perto. Now, when you think back your journey, where are you today in this and uh, what's next ahead of you? Well, I would say that we are, you know, on the way. <laughs> so we spent quite some time now over the past year or so um, developing a, a, a common you know, product development process and starting to use the same terminology and tools and frameworks to discuss value. And we've set up, we have actually set up the kind of practices to, to have a, a joint way of, you know, this approaching, approaching customers and having, having like really well facilitated customer discussions in place. In addition to, of course, all the sort of day to day normal, um, customer discussions that, that, you know, we have from product, uh, product management. I think we've learned perhaps something along the way, which is that we, a little bit depending on who you ask, but, uh, but especially initially, I think we went a little bit overboard in the, in the process definition side of things, which we've now since then adapted based on the feedback. You know, even if we did define the process with the people who are actually, you know, living it, um, still, you know, we, I think we went a little bit overboard, but I think What's good is that now people are starting to speak the same language. We've been able to bring transparency to internal stakeholders. Um, so for example, you know, sales, pre-sales to explain to them why have we decided to work on the things that we're working on? Why have we not started, you know, some of the other great ideas that, that are there? So basically have a joint discussion about, you know, forced ranking, also the very early part of the development lifecycle, which I think is very valuable because it it reduces finger pointing across different teams, which can easily happen if people don't understand why you made choices you have. Yeah, so I think we're on the way quite nicely. Um, still, still, you know, I would say there is there is room to improve. Um, and I think next, I would say is that where we can also put a lot more emphasis uh, going forward is to then ensure that our customers get the full benefits from both the new and the past, you know, product development investments. So even if you're focusing on the right things and building things which have a great value, unless you, you know, really finalize also the last mile of things, what's going to happen is that um, you're not going to ultimately get that value into your customer's hands. And it's, I think it's a couple of things. So first off, just like driving the customer adoption more, and that's where you can work with, with your you know, again, your internal stakeholders or your professional services or consulting slash delivery slash, you know, customer support, customer success managers are, of course, really key, key people in this to make sure that your customers are taking full benefits of what you've been delivering. Then for new customers, I would say really, again, the same internal stakeholders plus then really focus on, on improving, you know, sales enablement um, and making sure that your sales is, you know, always really up to speed both in terms of the latest and greatest that you develop, but also really the core value promise of your product portfolio. 
because what's often overlooked is that there's quite a bit of uh, turnover in a normal, you know, B2B, especially if you look at B2B SaaS companies, salespeople, uh, there's quite a bit of turnover in, in sales and it, you know, varies by, by company, but it's not uncommon to see, you know, double digit numbers there. So, and if you're in a high double digit numbers, it means that, you know, you have new salespeople coming in all the time. And unless you have a really efficient way of onboarding them and keeping that message fresh and repeating it enough, you're not going to be able to get them to a state quickly enough where they can really communicate the value to, to your customers. What advice do you have for people who are in the beginning stages of their journey now that you know what you know? I would say maybe, yeah, just take enough time to uh, to analyze the current state of affairs, meaning that there's probably room to improve in a whole lot of places, right? Um, that's typically the situation. Uh, and a bit ironically, as we discussed, like if you jump too quickly to the solution, you may not be working on the thing which has, you know, the most value internally, right? Most value in how do you improve your operations? So perhaps we should have done that as well, that, you know, just take a little bit more time, really analyze and discuss, you know, where you are today and what are really then the biggest levers, uh, what are really then the biggest levers to pull, uh, in order to get the change. Now, on a very high level, I think still it's very, very possible that it is in the realm of doing the right things versus doing things right. But there's so many elements related to that bigger theme that you could still spend a little bit of time to understand that, okay, well, if it's that, then, you know, where do we really, really need to focus? What is really the problem that we, we, we want to solve um, first? And then start to perhaps map out again, you know, to use the same product on terminology, some kind of a roadmap, a sequence of things that, okay, you know, once we have addressed this problem, then let's move on and start to fix this other problem area and not, not try to introduce too much change at one go because that might then also disrupt the way you're... We know pretty much what, what needs to be done. So uh, that that's a kind of good news, I guess. Um, like the past few years or the past decade, I, I think we have been using a lot of effort to kind of improve our factories. So, so get, get things, get our throughput up. And, uh, I, I guess now we should really concentrate on the, um, like the problem side and, and, and what, what, where, what really needs to be done. So my, my two advice actually are pretty simple. So, so make time for this kind of, uh, analyzing and, and uh, the problem and understanding the customer. Well, that means that you have to do something less because we, we don't get more time unless we do something or leave something out. So make time for this, what Berto mentioned, understanding the state of affairs pretty good in the very beginning. So that's that's one part. And and that means that we, we do less, but hopefully better. Uh, another thing which is already available today is, is just to get kind of benefits from from new new type of tools that that helps understanding the the customers documenting their problems uh, documenting the scope we are doing um, designing the customer experience and all, all that type of stuff so story mapping new prioritization tools kind of visual thinking, those customer personas, those things. Are, I think the tools are there. We, we just have to have to get used to those and, and also 
educate all people involved in product development and sales as well with these these new tools. So that that's my my take on this. So make time and take advantage of the tools that already exist there. That is to the point. The advice I got from uh, from somebody who founded their own company in the 50s and 60s and uh, built it basically a reselling chain for a specific industry over the next 50 years. And when I was 15 years, he told me that entrepreneurs need a lot of time and good tools and nothing really have changed in those 50 years. Good advice. Maybe the tools have changed, but you'd still need them. Yeah. Thank you, Perto and Marco, for joining. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to continue the conversation with Pertu and Marco, you can find their social media profiles from the show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, let's give our honored guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. I say now, take care of yourself and remember to take your time to analyze the current state. My name is Pertunisti. I'm the chief product officer at Basware. And uh, I've been running now the product management organization at Basware for the past two and a half years. Throughout my career, I've been working on, I would say, two two different topics. So one, I've been spending some time as a management consultant, learning different kind of strategies and frameworks and approaches. Uh, seeing a lot of different kind of companies. And then I have worked in what you could categorize as, you know, high tech slash software in different setups, uh, most notably the past nine or some years in Bassware and uh, then spent some time in, in, in Nokia also doing product strategy and portfolio management. So seeing quite a lot of things from different perspectives. Um, but I would say that, you know, the most interesting part of operations for me has been especially of late and throughout my career, I would say, places where business and technology merge, which is why, you know, product management, I think, is a, is a, is one of such key areas. And thus is also my passion. My name is Markku Nurmela and I'm currently working at Efficode as, as lead consultant. My daily work is, is helping customers with product and portfolio management uh, topics. I have a quite long career. It's over 30 years in different roles with product development companies so i i've done everything i've developed i i have been in sales i've managed business units i i've been a consultant quite a few years for now and also a trainer and a coach mainly my customers are ict companies software companies but i have consulted quite a few other industries as well hardware products service businesses and so forth so i've seen a lot but customers are always saying that their business is somehow special or extraordinary or something like that but but it looks like the problems are pretty much the same so even if you are in in service business you probably have the same kind of problems that when, when you are running a SaaS operation or something like that well and that that's my passion to help help companies to be better in product business and product management is is one one way to do that